0: Well, good morning. My name is Rob Jacobson, if we haven't met. And I have a new thing that's happening in my house. It is uh, something that... Uh, I was told to be prepared for, and I thought I would be prepared for, but I'm not prepared for it. And it is this uh, boldness that's coming in the way of preteen boys. They're kind of entering like our yard and sort of almost coming up to the door, but not quite. And then I'm getting to hear the stories at dinner about how um, little so-and-so, he is sitting at this girl's table and then bringing three friends, and they're kind of maneuvering themselves and shifting themselves at the little table until this particular boy is right across from my daughter, and, uh, and then he awkwardly eats lunch across from her. And um, so then I've got the other daughter who's telling me about how this boy's trying to call her, and he's asking her out, and she's like, Mom, I don't want to go out with boys. But, you know, there's this kind of boldness that I have to admire, from these preteen boys, but how many of you know, like, that these boys have no idea the dangers in front of them? I mean, this kind of boldness, I would call this brash, kind of brazen, like, I'm going to run ahead, but I have no idea what's in front of me. There's one kind of boldness. But there's another kind of boldness, too. I saw it on the news. It happened about five weeks ago when a 10-year-old girl from Northfield named Amber was with her mom, and she was driving down Highway 3 outside of town going out, and everybody was passing her. She was going super slow. This mom was sweating super bad, and her eyes were going, you know, kind of she was falling asleep, and immediately this 10-year-old girl knew that not only was something very wrong, but because her mom has been a diabetic for 33 years, and she's lived with her her whole life, she knew exactly what it was, and something in her surged up, and she got out from the back seat, jumped up, crawled into the front seat, like, is talking to her mom, gets on the cell phone with her dad, and then together with her dad, this little girl and her dad convince her mom to pull over, She gets on the side of the road. The 10-year-old, who can't drive, you know, throws it in the park, calls 911, and literally saves her mom's life. Now that, I would tell you, is boldness of a whole different sort. That's a boldness that knows exactly the dangers ahead and says, I'm going to go forward anyway. And I would contend that that kind of boldness is a boldness that invites something into us. It, it, it's this calm and calculated boldness. It's one that when we see it, when we know the dangers ahead, and when we watch someone do it, we say, oh, I, I want to follow them. It, it invades this sense of survival in us. It, it moves in a way, it surges like this sense of adventure into us, and it causes us, really, to stand up against whatever the status quo is, and, and whatever the broken parts of the world or the places that we're at, and just move forward, run forward. That's the kind of boldness that I see in the story we're about to read. And as you turn there, if you have a Bible, and if you want a Bible, we would love to give you one, but as you turn to Acts 3 and 4, there's this story that is very easy to turn off or tune out or to shut down. It's a story that could invite us in, but it's a story that points to the broken people and the broken places that we'd honestly rather ignore. It's a story that asks for more than we often want to give. And it's a story that compels us to stand for Jesus. It, it requires not only a bold belief, but a bold action. And often, we quickly walk by it. So I pray that that as we read this story and as you and I listen to what God is saying, that we would first of all hear that God not only wants to work in us, but he also wants to work through us. And that there is this thing going on that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, this thing that we're calling unstoppable, that's really God's Holy Spirit, as Jesus continues to do and teach what he started, it's this movement that doesn't, in, in our wave analogy, we saw the picture of the wave, in the wave analogy, it doesn't just invite us out into the water to surf the waves, but it actually invites us to call others out into the water and for them to surf the waves. And for that... I think we need bold faith. But if you're not sure you have it, because there's been plenty of times that I'm not sure I have it, would we just remember that, that these are an amateur crew of men and women? Their only qualifications are that they've been with Jesus, and they turn the world upside down, or rather, I believe, they turn the world right side up. And they literally continue to grow and move through history in a way that is undeniable and really, quite honestly, unstoppable. But it takes a bold faith. And the whole, I think the whole theme and linchpin of the whole episode is found in in Acts 4.13, where it just says, that the members of the council, that we'll talk about in a second, but when the members of the council saw Peter and John, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were amazed, for they could see that they were just ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And they also recognized him as men who had been with Jesus. Boldness is, is in the Greek word, it's this parisia, it's this courage, it's this confidence, but parisia is actually similar to this other word that we know as the spirit called paraclete. So the first part of that para word is this come alongside attitude. It's this person who stands back to back and fights with you. And, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would come upon these people and it would be like this paraclete, this person who would come alongside and fight toe to toe, shoulder to shoulder, stand along with, and This is the idea, the same idea of this boldness, that we know that that someone is with us, someone that is way more powerful than us, and it causes us to stand up. It causes us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in who is with us. And this episode starts way back in uh, a chapter before, it starts in Acts 3.1 when Peter and John come along and they're walking up to temple to do the afternoon prayer service that they always do and they see a lame beggar and he asks for money and Peter, instead of giving him money, heals him in the name of Jesus and, and Peter then goes on to speak that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior and that the resurrection is still happening. We'll come back to that, I promise. But they're put in prison in the evening and the next day they face this Trial where possibly all seventy one members of this council called the sanhedrin uh, that 's what that 's what it looks like. Imagine being the person that 's standing in front the accused in front of the high priest who by the way has brought the past high priest, which is a relative, and then six other relatives that are all members of this. Talk about a little nepotism going on, and then all of these other students and scholars and Like I said, students, in the back, there'd be the best and the brightest in the scriptures. And the accused is supposed to stand before them. And by the way, this is the same council that had Jesus stand before them one night, several weeks before this, as they condemned him to death. I mean, just think about what's going through Peter and John's minds as they're locked up simply for doing things that Jesus would do and saying things that Jesus would say. Still happens today. And as they go stand before this council, I think they're getting scowling faces. They're getting stared down with hostile glances from the very same people that called for the execution of their rabbi. I don't know about you, but it doesn't make sense to me. And to me, I think that Peter and John have every reason not to stand for Christ. They've just been imprisoned, they're about to be threatened, and and they have to stand before this crowd and instead of cowering, they choose to stand for Christ. So much so that all the council can do is be astonished and say, they are bold. And and they're unschooled, and they're ordinary. And all we know is they've been with Jesus. These are blue-collar fishermen. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They have no, they have no formal training. And they give this quite crafty interpretation of a psalm where Jesus is the first stone of a new temple, which really rocks their world, no pun intended. And, and in the midst of it, all they can say is, these men have been with Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I think about having to be bold or wanting to be bold or seeing something, even that someone else does and going, oh, I want to do that, I, I go, well, let's see. Um, there's, there's lots of reasons, externally and internally, why I can't do that. I don't know if you have that same kind of idea. But this story gives me hope. To know that, that these guys are ordinary. To know that they have no special training. They have no special family status. The only qualification is they have this parenthesis around them that says, they were people who'd been with Jesus. Well, if I could be with Jesus, maybe I could do that maybe you need that today too. I mean, they'd seen him and heard him pray. They'd walked with him every night and every day. They'd listened to the way that he interpreted the scriptures so much so that that they even had the Bible into them in a way that now when they're in this moment, because of their watching their, their Savior, their teacher, die, but yet they went to his tomb and found it empty and then seen him afterwards, we could just simply, again, we could walk through this and go, you know, that stuff, that just doesn't happen. But something surges up in them in such a way that people take note. And if I could be like that, if they could show me how, if we could somehow understand that and really openly understand that, I think we would see how this boldness is really, truly available to each of us. This scene ends with the, the, the rulers and, and teachers of the day saying that they see this boldness in them, and, and they could see the man who's simply standing there after being healed, which we'll get to in a moment, and they had nothing to say which in my mind is kind of a miracle in itself. So then they, they w- remove them from their council, and they talk together and say, what are we going to do? I mean, everyone in this whole city is talking about them and talking about and their miracles and how Jesus has risen from the dead, and yet we can't control this thing, keyword. And so we've got to put a stop to it. I know, we've got all the power, We've got the authority. We're going to bring them in and tell them that they have to stop spreading this any further. We can't let them speak in this name anymore. And they call them in and do just that. They threaten them. They command them not to say this. And their response is, well, who do you think we're going to listen to? You evaluate it. Is it right for us to follow you, religious leaders? Do you have the highest authority? No, we believe God has the highest authority, so we're going to follow him. And they know where that got Jesus. I don't think that just comes from something they manufacture. It is as I and, and the reason we started with the end of the story is because I'm I'm just asserting out there that we see in these disciples not the preteen boy like yeah we're gonna go after that girl because that's cool but this. Cool, calculated boldness. This something that comes up from within that they don't have, that they can't manufacture, that can only come from the Holy Spirit and from a personal encounter with the power of God working in your life. That's where it comes from, and I think that's what's available to us. And so I'd just like to spend a few minutes on, on kind of thinking about, talking about, conversing about what it would mean for them to have that boldness and even more, what it, would it mean for, for you and I to have that boldness. So let's pray and, and look at the beginning of the story. So God, I pray that your word would um, speak because it's alive and that we could enter this story. And as we see the scene, God, that you would you would speak to us By your spirit about who we are in the story. And that you would move us and question us and challenge us and awaken us to what you're doing. Amen. See, I think that if you look up boldness in the dictionary, you will find something like this Boldness comes from this deep conviction of where you think true life is found. Boldness comes from your deepest conviction of where you think true life is found. Think about it. Why would preteen boys run ahead, you know, oblivious to the dangers, to sit with a group of girls if not because they think that life is found in that group of girls? Or why would a 10-year-old girl named Amber jump into the front seat of her mom's car as she is swerving off the road, as she is literally dying, if not for her belief that true life is found in her family. That she knows that diabetes is powerful and obviously has power over her mom right now, but something surges up within her that says, no, 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 the, fam- the love that I have for my mom I I don't call the hospital, I don't call the police, I don't try and convince my mom, I call my dad. Because I believe that there is a power, that life is found in our family and in their marriage. I would say that this this idea is mostly true. This idea that boldness comes from our deepest conviction of where true life is found is true, but if if you go down that intellectual road for a while, You might say, well, so can you just pick whatever you want as your truest conviction? Can you pick whatever you want to think, hey, I think true life is found in this, and then run after it, and then be bold? Certainly, there are people that have done that, strapped bombs to themselves, and and run out into a crowd, and said, yeah, that's where true life is found. So, before we go too far down this road, I, I think, no, we can't just pick something, Additionally, I think we've got to experience that, not just have an idea about it, but even more than that, I think we've got to evaluate it, see if these claims are true. And like I said, this is a story that it would be really easy for us to just go, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if it's true. So let's evaluate it. It starts with this idea that one day, Peter and John are walking up to the temple. This is what they do. If you are a Jewish person that believes in this God, then you go up to the temple at nine, at three, and at sunset. And so, if you're there, and they were, they walk up. They walk through one of the gates. They happen to be going through this temple gate that's called Beautiful. It's on the east side, and it goes from the um, exterior into the court of women and court of Israel, but not the court of the men. And so... It's this beautiful bronze and gold and silver gate that that many people choose to go in because of that significance of the east side, because Adam and Eve were, were thrust out of the garden from the east side. So this is the one they pick to go in because it's like coming back into relationship with God. And there's this beggar there. This beggar who is sat down, sat down on these steps every day to beg for money. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Do you have any money for a poor, lame person who can't go into the house of healing, who is barred because they're sick and they're broken to go into a place where they could find hope and healing? Would you give some money? I'm sure he did quite well. He's got a story, and it would have been very easy for Peter and John to dig in their pockets and pull out some cash. But they stop. And the text says that they look intently at him. I don't know the last time you were asked for money by someone that was a beggar. And I don't know how you, how you responded to that. But I know there are some days that I just want to walk by. There's some days that I, I want to give money. But there are very few days where I go, God, do you want me to have a personal encounter with this human being who can't go into your house? That's what Peter and John do. Maybe you identify with the beggar because you would say, um. yeah, I'm physically or spiritually or emotionally kind of broken. Or I've been stuck in this place for a few days or maybe a few weeks or a few months, maybe in years, Like, I know I don't want to be in this place, but I'm still in this place. It just seems like the cycle continues, and every day I end up here, wherever here is. In fact, some people are even saying that my situation is just as good as it's going to get. I think this guy, this beggar, really truly believed that that money would fix his problem, or at least make it better. And there are some of us that are saying, God, you know, if I just had a little more money, it would be better. And you're trying to fight off the cynicism, and maybe you even want this boldness that we're talking about, but like the beggar, you have no idea how to get it. Maybe you're there, and that's, it's okay to be there. But maybe you're one of the worshipers the other people that are walking by. See, if you notice in the story, there's a man who's lame from birth at the Temple Gate Beautiful, and when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looks straight at them and then says, Look at us. See, I think that Peter says that because he is asking Peter and John for money. He's like, oh, I haven't, I haven't done them before. You know, money for the poor, money for the poor. They stop, and you know what he does? He's waiting for them to give money, but he, he sees other people going into temple. He doesn't want to miss that opportunity. Money for the poor, money for the poor. Hey, look at us. He wants to have a personal encounter, but, but the beggar is like, well, there's opportunity here. I'm going to miss opportunity, and maybe you're one of the people that is walking by. You want to do your religious routine. Not bad to do your religious routine, by the way, especially if it gets you closer to God. But sometimes there are needy people in your life that maybe you just don't have the time for or the energy for. You know something should be done. You want to do something, but it's really hard to not fall into this pattern of what could one person do? What could one church do? This problem is so much bigger than this person. There's a whole system of problems. And so I walk on by. Maybe you're one of the worshipers. Just sit and see yourself as a person in the story. So maybe you're one of the worshipers, Maybe you're the beggar. But maybe you're Peter and John. I guess you'd be one person, Peter or John. You can decide. But you stop and you decide to have a personal encounter with this person. When they ask you for something, what's your response? Again, I think it would have been completely natural for Peter and John to go, Oh, here. It won't fix it, but it'll help. Or maybe they even turned, hey, guys, do you have any? John, ask the other guys that are here. Do, do, do they have any? Let's, you know, get a little collection going. Maybe we can give this to them. Completely natural. Maybe even a little bold, but not the boldness we see here. See, I think the boldness we see here is this thing that we talked about when we started. This boldness that says, Lord Jesus What can I give that will really help this person, that will really heal this individual who you love that's sitting before you, that can't even come into your house? What could I give? And as he stares at this gate that's probably worth thousands, if not millions of dollars, he says, silver and gold I don't have. But part of me says, even if he did have it, would he give that? Another part of me says, well, he probably doesn't have it because he's already realized that compared to the power and presence of Jesus, that money is not worth anything. So they've been giving it away since the whole resurrection and Pentecost thing, the spirit movement thing, have started. And so naturally he says that. Spirit and gold, money, silver and gold I don't have, but I give you what I have. I been with Jesus. And in the power of his name, I tell you to get up and walk. I tell you to get out of your cycle. And it says that he took him by the hand. And I find it interesting, this is one of the reasons I really like this writer who's called Luke, is that he says not just by any hand, by the right hand, by this authority, this power, not this unsureness of like, oh, you know, if you've ever shaken someone's hand that like doesn't know how to shake hands and they go, it's like this really limp fish. You know, it's, it's not any confidence at all. No, no. Peter has confidence that God is going to do something. I don't think he knows what he's going to do, but he takes him by the right hand and he pulls him up, and it says that his ankles are strengthened. If if Luke is a medical doctor, which, you know, the story says that he is, he gives quite a good definition here that would say that he's not making this up. Now, I believe there's actual reason for that, physical evidence for that, but I also believe there's a theological significance to that because that's what the Bible is trying to do, right? It's trying to teach us and change us to how we view God. This is the God who makes lame people walk. This is the God who makes things that are dead come alive. This is a God who changes the status quo. And when they get going here, the crowd says they're amazed. He jumps up and he praises God it's because and then peter sees this opportunity to tell them what just happened here's the theological reasons i'm not just going through my religious routine here of going up to pray i've had undeniable personal encounters with the god of the universe who's come in this person of jesus and his presence and his power is still here I can't deny that. I've lived in that, and now I'm not living by my physical limitations anymore. I'm not living by just my abilities anymore. I don't reach into my pockets when somebody has a need, when a needy person or a big problem comes my way and goes, I don't know, I don't know, I only have this much. God, I know that's how this story speaks to me, is that I'm so quick to look at my own abilities or my own resources and say yes or no. And for the last couple weeks, it's just been amazing, even though it's been hard, to watch God say, why aren't you looking at my resources? Remember, I raised Jesus from the dead. I can do a few things. I own the cattle on a thousand hill. Like, governments and armies and authorities don't stand up to me. Why don't you look at that? That's just how it's speaking to me. But how I see it as speaking to us as well is that Peter and John... Believe and have moved past their physical abilities and their limitations. They have these undeniable personal experiences, and this, this boldness is birthed from that. And it fills them up, and they look into this guy's eyes, they ask him to have a personal encounter with Jesus, and then they offer the crowd and the man the only thing that will truly heal him. And then when he goes to the religious leaders he offers them the same thing. It's what we need to evaluate if we want boldness. And it's summed up in this verse in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name by which we must be saved. No one else. Why did I not give money? Because it won't save them. Why would I not just bring him into temple? Because religion isn't going to save him. Why am I not afraid when I stand up to the authorities? Because the authorities aren't going to save him. The authorities aren't going to heal him. There is no other name. It's the most exclusive thing. It's the reason that Christians are persecuted to this day all around the world is because we say that Jesus is the only way to truly have a relationship with the God of the universe. But this thing is the truth that we need to evaluate. And we see that this is what Peter believes. He is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the only way to true life. He's the only source of real power. He's the only thing that can cause this abundance to come up. So I would just say it like this. The only way we can boldly stand for Christ is that we have a bold belief in Christ. The only way we can stand for Christ is to have a bold belief in In Christ. This is when you say, amen. Okay. So, and it's not something that we don't want to evaluate. Just as we wrap up quickly, Peter says, I'm not just deciding that Jesus is the Messiah. Look, the God of uh, Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus this, this idea, this this title, is reserved for Moses when Moses is called to free God's people from slavery in Egypt. This is Jesus, the new Moses. This is the God. We didn't do this, he says, not by our power that we made this guy walk. We just simply followed what God has already started, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers, who called Abraham from a dead place where they worship moon gods across across a desert to new life. A man who was 100 years old has a child. Now you can say, no way, I don't believe it, but this is the God who does brings dead things to life, people. And then he takes Jacob, who he sets on an altar to sacrifice, and he provides a sacrifice for him, because this is a God who provides when we have nothing. And then he talks about this Isaac, this, this person of God who deceived and who favored one of his sons and who becomes the father of their nation. This is the one for whom God addresses Moses, the one he calls the people out of slavery for 400 years from the most powerful empire in the world. People, this God is on the move. He is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm not just making it up. I'm not just picking what my deepest conviction will be and then trying to live bold from it. It's obvious that Jesus is the Messiah. It's obvious for this reason, he says, of God, of the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for this reason, the God of Moses and the Exodus, and you have handed him over to be killed— you disowned, he says, the holy and righteous one. This is what all the prophets have said. Basically, Peter is saying, you can look through the scriptures and you will see in every reference to the holy and righteous one, you will find the person of Jesus is described there. I'm not deciding what my truth will be and where true life comes from. It's obvious that it comes from Jesus. And then the one that I really wanted to spend a moment on is he says, you, oh gosh, I got so excited. I lost it, okay, okay. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. So I don't know if you have in your Bible like something else. Uh, when I used to have my old Bible, it said the prince of life, and I kept thinking like men in tights and, you know, humpering, comforting, comforting, or, you know, he's not even the king and he sits on a throne. The prince of life doesn't evoke any sense of boldness in me, and an author really doesn't invoke any sense of me because I know authors. They sit around with laptops and their sweatpants and they write stories I mean, even if they're stories of life, it doesn't evoke something in me. But so then I look up the Greek word, do a little study, and it's archagos. Archagos, I know, it's this amazing word. You can try and say it archagos. Okay, archagos is way more than a prince and way more than an author. Archagos is like this pioneer person, it's this trailblazer person. Archagos is the person who goes first. And then other people can follow in that path. See, archegos was this word that they used in first century when ships were at sea and they would try and come into shore and there would be these rocks and they they would crash on the rocks and so the waves are pounding the ship against the rocks and they can see the shore, they just can't get to shore. And so they're like, what are we going to do? And they have to take a rope, tie it onto something sturdy in the ship and then have someone else be the archegos who ties it around his waist or her waist, who dives into the rocks and the waves and the water and swims to shore because someone has to go first and they would get the rope to shore. They would tie it around something sturdy and then wave to everyone else who would jump in and hold the rope and they would follow them to safety. That, friends, is an archegos. So when the Bible dictionary says, Someone who blazes the way, someone who establishes the way of salvation and leads people to it. That evokes something in me, obviously. I hiked over 100 miles last summer on the Superior Hiking Trail. Everywhere there was a sign and a path. Actually, these blue dashes. Because an archegos had gone before me and completed the whole thing. I just got to follow the path. It was fun, but it really wasn't hard. I never in any way were like, I don't know where I am, because the trail was already established. I would say that we need an Archegos for life, and Peter is convinced, and I am too, that that's who Jesus is. And when you and I, when we believe this, when we believe that Jesus is this pioneer of our life, when he's the one who goes first, when we believe that he's the one who goes first in raising people from the dead, then his presence and power are now unleashed in us. Not in this emotional hip hip parade boldness, but in this cool, calculated boldness, because we now believe and are deeply convinced through truth, through intellect, through reasoning, through theological understanding, through emotional understanding, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and Archagos of life. And everything is now new. Every opportunity that we never imagined is possible because this is the God who makes lame people walk and jump and praise God. This is the God where religion doesn't have the final authority. Because we have the Archegos. It's the place where the authorities of the earth don't have the power because Jesus is the Archegos. It's the place where money doesn't have the final say, doesn't have the authority, or pity doesn't have the power, or popularity doesn't have the power. Amen to my junior high days for that. It's where Jesus has the power. And that is the life that he doesn't just proclaim, but he invites ordinary people to come in. You want to be a part of it? As the band comes up, I just want to invite you to think about what might be crippling you. Especially if you identify with the beggar or a problem that is in your life that is huge or just a really big need. Might be crippling you emotionally, or mentally, or physically, or spiritually. And I, if you can think of that, let me just invite you to ask are you settling or hoping for something so much less than the resurrection of the dead? Because it didn't stop with Jesus. And it's not just for heaven when we die. It's now and forever. And if you're not feeling anything that's crippling, I just say amen to that. So I would ask you this. What are you attempting that could not happen without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life? What are you risking and trying and saying, God, if you don't show up in that, it will not happen. That is what he invites us into. Where are you at? Where are you just content with things being status quo? Maybe you're even protecting like something that is known like the religious lures, because you can't imagine what it would be like to live in this uncontrolled, almost uncontrolled way, a life that is just has a rope that's tethered to Jesus. But see, I don't have to follow, and I don't have to think about it in the sense of wondering where to go. All I have to do is put my hand on the rope and follow like I'm walking home from kindergarten. That's the faith. It's not easy, but it's not complex. That's the faith that we are invited into. This is where boldness is birthed, when you and I can be convinced that Jesus is the Archegos. And then we only have to follow his trail. It means that he went first, and we know where true life is found, and we can invite others to grab the rope and join in. And he'll do so much more than we can ask or imagine. He will bring hope to the places that you think have no hope. He will bring healing to the broken things that you think can't be fixed. And he can, believe, he can build in us and around us a kingdom that will not fall. And we don't have to ignore people's needs and we don't have to be paralyzed by the world's problems. We can just speak Jesus' words and perform Jesus' acts. And I truly know and believe that miracles will happen. So stand up and be bold.